Paddle Point Park off of Miller near Chisa. Okay, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, some of you are not drivers, so you've never had this experience firsthand, but maybe you've been sitting in the passenger seat. Have you ever had the joy of turning the wrong way down a one-way street? You ever had that? <laughs> it's exhilarating, isn't it? <laughs> There's that moment where you're like, oh, I'm going the wrong way, and those people coming at you were like, you're going the wrong way. Well, uh, it got me thinking, one of my favorite movie clips of all time uh, comes from the 1980s classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I'm not promoting the movie, okay? So there's some language and there's some stuff in there, so don't come back and be like, oh, Pastor Chris, this or that. But it's a fantastic movie. Anyway, I'm not recommending, but it's funny. So um, I only watch Left Behind in Christian movies at home. Um, they're the main characters, uh, one by the name of Neil Page, you, you'll know as Steve Martin. Uh, he's an executive trying to get home for the holidays, and he runs into a very uh, outspoken, very personable, uh, excitable uh, shower curtain ring salesman, Dale Griffin, known as the late John Candy. Uh, in this particular scene, uh, there's this like three-day odyssey, and it's insane, and all this crazy stuff, but in this particular scene, Dale is driving. Uh, Neil is asleep in the passenger seat, and it appears like they may be going the wrong way. I don't know. Take it out. Let's take a look. Hey, what's going on? Some joker wants to race. Race? That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. By far, my favorite scene. Um, I love that because you're going the wrong way. And, and interestingly enough, can anybody in here for a thousand points tell me what was the early church? What were they known as? The people of what? The way. And what's fascinating about that statement that they were a people of the way, they were proclaiming to a culture, you're going the wrong way. Because family, there's a way that seems right. Oh, it seems absolutely 100% spot on. It seems accurate. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of what? It is death. You're headed for a head-on collision. 
And this message of Jesus being the way began to spread north, south, east, and west along established trade routes in the early first century. In fact, it, it, it goes to show us how clearly Acts 1-8 becomes the overall verse of Acts. In fact, let's open our Bibles to Acts. Everybody say word. We are in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts, and we are looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to begin with, because this creates our framework of the entire study. The disciples and apostles had gathered around Christ after his resurrection from the dead, and they were asking him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To which Jesus declared, it's not for you to know the day or the season, the time of the hour, but this is what you will do. This is what you will know. You will receive what? Power. As dunamai, dynamic power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be, not you will You'll have an opportunity to be. No, you will be. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Like a rock dropped in a pond with concentric circles coming out, the gospel was going to spread. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 becomes the framework really of the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. We have seen the gospel spread from Jerusalem, it went out to Judea and Samaria, and now by the time we turn to Acts chapter 11, which is where we're at in our Bible, so turn to Acts chapter 11, the gospel is now spreading to the farthest reaches of earth. Understand this, Christianity, the message of the gospel, the way was always intended to go global. The message of Christ was never designed to be just a regional truth. It was intended to go global from the very, very beginning. So some of you may be wondering, as I share with you about missionaries, you may be wondering, why do people go around the world? Why do people go around the country? Why do people go around the community sharing Jesus? Because we were were empowered with the Holy Spirit. We were always called to be witnesses. And this message was always supposed to go global. And what's fascinating as the message went out, can somebody tell me why did the message, why did they leave Jerusalem? Persecution. See, things get real cozy. You know, Christians, we can get real cozy. And and in chapter two of Acts, they were real cozy. They had everything in common. They had goodwill with all the people. They were in studying the the apostles' teaching. Uh, They were enjoying meals together and going to the temple together, and they were worshiping and fellowshipping. And it was this beautiful, utopic scene And uh, that's kind of where they were hanging out until persecution came. And persecution came in the form of arrests and attacks and oppression and and zealous harassment. And that is when the gospel began to go out. In fact, we saw uh, Philip in chapter 8 bring the gospel to Samaria and then take the gospel to the eunuch traveling to Africa. We see in chapter, chapter 10, Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius' house, and we see this, this radical reality that the gospel wasn't just spreading geographically, but it was spreading across racial and culture lines. Here's something we need to wrap our minds around, and this is something that the first church, the first century church had to come to realize, in Christ, there are to be no racial or cultural divisions, That in Christ we are to worship as one person. I did not say there aren't supposed to be distinctions, and I did not say there isn't uniqueness, because there is uniqueness. There are unique people. You know people who are unique? Some of us call them weird. They're just unique. There are weird people in the church, I being one of them. It was once believed that the gospel was only for a certain race of people. 
It was only for a certain culture. Thank God that paradigm got just entirely annihilated. I love, I love looking back at Jesus' teaching because he was telling the disciples early on, guys, the gospel is bigger than you think. John chapter 10. I know I told you Acts 11. We'll get there. John 10, Jesus is speaking, verse 15, just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now the question is, who are the sheep? Who are the sheep? Are the sheep just Jewish sheep? Or are Gentile sheep involved in that? Well, Jesus goes on, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who are the other sheep? Gentiles. Well, we are. So everybody go, ah. <laughs> what did y'all do at church today? Uh, we went, ah. It was awesome. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be how many flocks? One flock. And there will be how many shepherds? One shepherd. This is very confusing culturally because I'll often have people tell or ask me, so what religion are you? And I'm like, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah, 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 but which, which kind? Like, which flavor? I'm like, what do you, what do you mean, what kind? Like, are you, a, are you a Baptist flavor? Or are you, like, a Catholic flavor? Like, what religion? And it's so confusing for the culture because here's the reality. There aren't multiple flocks. There's one, like, worldwide flock, okay? There's one flock. And they are believers in Christ. They are followers of the way. There's one flock and there's one shepherd. Who's that one shepherd? Jesus. Everybody else are rent-a-shepherds. I'm a rent-a-shepherd. Okay? The true shepherd, the true shepherd of your souls is who? Jesus. Right. And we are one flock under one shepherd. This truth, this is reality. It's going to be borne out for the first time, really, uh, in the city of Antioch. And so I want us to now turn our attention back to Acts 11. We, We should see... A flock of sheep, both Jew and Gentiles, gathering together if John chapter 10 plays out. Now, what we've seen thus far in the book of Acts is we've seen all of the rock stars, the famous people spreading the gospel. And, and often that's the perspective in the church. We get this idea that it's the big names. Those are the ones that have the anointing. Those are the ones that carry the gospel. I'm so grateful that the early verses of Acts 11, 19, through 20, they don't tell us any names. We don't get any names. Luke doesn't tell us who the preachers were. We're left to believe and we're left to see that God was using common Christians to carry out the miraculous work of spreading the gospel. I quote here from D.G. Peterson. He says this, what we're about to read is the first detailed account of evangelism by ordinary believers. How many of you feel ordinary? I'm a pretty ordinary believer. Run of the mill. That's a wonderful thing. Okay? Because this work, this great work of planting the most influential church, only second to the church at Jerusalem, was carried out by ordinary folk, just like us. Uh, previous accounts involved apostles or prophetic leaders such as Stephen and Philip, etc., but here we see ordinary people. So Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were, what's that word? Scattered. Can someone tell me again, why were they scattered? Persecution. What does scattered mean? What does it mean that they were scattered? Scattered, what? What would be an image of this? What would be an illustration of? Drop a bunch of marbles, throw a bunch of seed. I like the picture of seed because seed does what when it's, when it's planted in soil? It grows. Well, that's if it's good seed. If it's bad seed, it just sits there and you have dirt. But if it's good seed, and I believe the seed in Jerusalem was good because they were discipled that when they got scattered out, they planted in places and fruit came up. 
Okay, so they are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, the church's first martyr in chapter 7. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Interesting. So you had this one particular group who were focusing on the Jews, and then in verse 20 we'll see there's a group that's focusing on the Gentiles. But here's a map. I love maps. Maps are my friend. And I finally got my ESV Bible Atlas back. Thank you, Miss Leah Newman. Uh, in case you weren't here last week, I was making the mention that someone had borrowed my ESV Atlas and had never returned it, and it turns out I had lent it to Leah, and um, I actually did, and I forgot about it. So now someone has made me a book of stickers that says, this book belongs to Chris. Even if he forgets that he gave it to you, please give it back to him. <laughs> so just in case you borrow a book, anyway, you get the point. But isn't that a nice map? I like this map. Okay, so down here in the bottom, we've got Palestine, okay? Below that is Jerusalem. So that is kind of like the epicenter, well, not kind of, that is the epicenter of the Jesus movement. Acts chapter 2, the gospel falls. Well, through persecution, this seed, the scattering starts happening. And so they start traveling along uh, established trade routes. So they start heading north. Some sail over to Cyprus and start preaching the word at Cyprus. And some head all the way up to Antioch to this, this very metropolitan style city of like some like 500 to 800,000 people. Some of them Jewish, but the majority of them Gentiles. So there's a group that reaches out to the, the Jews in Antioch. But also in verse 20, it says, but there were some of them Thank goodness for some of them who could break outside of that paradigm. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the who? The Hellenists. Someone just said it. Someone said the word. What, what does Hellenist stand for? The Greeks. Not just Greek enculturated, but the Gentile people. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And what we come to discover is that both those who were preaching to the Jews and, both who, and those who were preaching to the Gentiles, there was much fruit because the hand of the Lord was with them. Look at verse 21. This is, this is the difference maker. Okay? If the hand of the Lord is not with you, there will be no power. But when the hand of the Lord is with you, the text says there was a great number who believed and did what? They turned to the Lord. And I call these the seasons of faith turnings where either an individual or a group of people are faced one direction, and they turn to the Lord. They are going the wrong way, and they turn to follow Christ. And the question is, how many people responded at this point? The, what does the text tell us? How many people responded in verse 21? A great number. How many is that? That's a whole lot of, a whole lot of people. And I'm so grateful that we don't get a number. We get so infatuated with numbers. In Acts chapter 2, we see that 3,000 people responded. And we're like, I wonder how many thousands responded here. The point is not how many people responded. The fact is a lot of people responded. And what I want to stress is that in every context of the New Testament where it talks about a group of people coming to faith so the church grows wide, in the immediate context, it immediately speaks about discipleship, growing people deep. So the purpose of ministry is not just to grow the church wide, but it is also to grow the church deep. We celebrate when people are saved, but we deeply rejoice when people are discipled and trained. It's one thing to become a believer and get your, your ticket stamped to heaven. It's another thing to be a follower of Christ and to grow in your faith. I want you to look back in Acts chapter 2 because I want you to see how this works. In the context of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the masses and the temple. It says in verse 41, so those who received his word, those who 
turned to the Lord, were baptized, and there were added that day about how many? 3,000 souls. And we think, wow, that church just grew super wide. But immediately, verse 42, in the context, it talks about discipleship. And they devoted themselves. That word devoted, it means that they put themselves deeper into the faith. They devoted themselves. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they, they focused on the scriptures and the fellowship to, together as community, to the breaking of bread as communion and having fellowship meals and prayer. So they're growing deep. Now look back at Acts chapter 11. Because in verse 21, it says a great number responded. And then in the very next verse, it starts talking about discipleship. Again, family, it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be discipled. So look at verse 22. It says the report of this came to the ears at the church of Jerusalem. And they're like, wait, what's going on in Antioch? Yeah, there's Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. This church is planted. God's moving in power. And so they immediately were like, hey, look, we need to send Barnabas to Antioch. This church needs discipleship. This church needs leadership. And so they choose Barnabas. Verse 23, he comes to Antioch and he sees the grace of God. And how does he respond? He's glad. When you see God moving in power, it should bring joy. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I love this. I love this picture of Barnabas because he is this guy who we see multiple times through the book of Acts. His name is Joseph, but he's such an encourager. They're like, we got to call this guy Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They're like, He's such an encourager. We should call him, just call him encouragement. Hey, encouragement, how's it going? And he has such a service, uh, service, a servant's heart, and he has this desire to sacrifice. In Acts 4, he sells a chunk of land and gives the proceeds to the church. In Acts 9, he vouches for Saul of Tarsus when the church is petrified of him in Jerusalem. He's like, I vouch for Saul. He really is a believer. And then here, chapter 11, he's presented as an exhorter. And you all, you all know what the word exhort means, right? Like it's one of those biblical words that, have you exhorted somebody today? Are you an exhorter? Many of us are like, I, I, I don't know. Have I exhorted somebody today? I hope so. Do you know what the word means? What does it mean to exhort? Encourage, okay. What else? What's that? Spur on, I like that. I like that. It's one of those words that we can read and go, oh, he exhorted them. Interesting. Uh, well, the word itself is the Greek word para. Remember, say para. Kaleo. Para. Kaleo. Para. Kaleo. Para means alongside of, to compound. Kaleo means to call. To exhort somebody is to call them alongside of yourself. And so Barnabas arrives at Antioch and he says, come alongside of me and walk with me. And in these words that he says, he's, he's admonishing them, he's encouraging them, he's exhorting them to remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast purpose. That is his call. He's like, come along with me, let's remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast purpose with devotion and a dedicated life. See, at some point in time, in our Christian life, I believe we all have to come to a place where we're going to take our relationship with Christ and pull it off the back burner and put it on the front of our existence and set it as a priority of our life. It is too easy to compartmentalize our Christianity to some tiny, tiny little pocket of our life. And I'll tell you, that's actually a natural posture. 
it's very, very natural for us to not prioritize Jesus in our life. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, where we record, where we read the fall of humanity, we see there's two natural postures of humanity. The first is to be separated from others. They clothe themselves with fig leaves. And to be separated from God, they hid when they heard God coming. Natural. A very natural posture in our life is to be separated from others and to hide from God. We don't have to work at doing that. That's going to come naturally in our flesh. We also have a culture that is trying to pull us away. If you think that you can hop into the stream of culture and just let it pull you, and you think it's going to lead you near the heart of Christ, you are fooling yourself. Culture is constantly pulling us away from Jesus. Do you all disagree with that? Do you see the culture pulling you closer to your relationship with Jesus? No? Yes? Are we all here right now? Are we at 2402 Castle Drive? Yes. Culture will pull you away, and it does. How about this? We have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we have our flesh working against a growing spiritual life. We have a culture working against a growing Christian life. And we have an enemy who seeks to destroy any growth or potential for growth in our life. I would say we are, we are in a really tough place when it comes to growing a Christian life. Wouldn't you agree? It's not going to happen by accident. That is why Barnabas came, and that, that's why he exhorted them. That's why he called them along said and said, hey, remain steadfast, faithful. Don't quit. It's easy to set aside scripture reading. I do it all the time. Netflix is easier. It just is. I'm not picking on Netflix, but it's a lot easier to turn that on than it is to open the Bible. It's easy to set aside prayer and to not prioritize just communion and talking with God. It's easy to set aside community and coming to church on Sunday. I get it. I wake up some Sundays, I'm like, man, you know what sounds good right now? Flapjacks. Some IHOP. I'm going to go hop on into IHOP. Crawl on out when I'm done. I mean, it, it just sounds fun. But does it grow my spiritual life? No, it grows my stomach. See, there's a lot of things we can prioritize. But I want to challenge this family, at some point in time in our Christian life, we're going to have to prioritize being a follower of Jesus. And that's what Barnabas is challenging me. So he's like, don't lose sight. Don't lose the high. You guys are coming off a weekend where you've been like poured into, and so, you're exhausted. I get it. But you are feeling close to Christ. And I will tell you, it is so easy to start kind of drifting away. Your natural postures drift. The cultures drift. The enemy's like, don't grow, don't grow. We've got to fight against it. I can tell you that my, my life, from personal experience, I have never been the better for drifting, ever. I have, I've experienced, uh, 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 never experienced a greater sense of joy or satisfaction or abundance in my life by setting aside my faith. Now, what happens when I set aside my, my Christian faith? I start to grow dry and brittle and anxious and insecure and fearful the more I drift, the more I dry out. And so I encourage you, the words of Barnabas, remain faithful. It was under this loving and gracious encouragement that the church continued to grow, not just wide, but deep, producing fruit. And this work demanded other laborers. And I love Barnabas. Because how many of you all, have you all heard of Saul the Apostle? He wrote like two-thirds in the New Testament. We should probably know about Paul. But I'll tell you right now, without a Barnabas, there would be no Paul. 
And there's another person that comes to mind that you, I'm sure, have heard of. You've heard of Edward Kimball. You all have heard of Edward Kimball, right? Really? You've never heard of Edward Kimball? He was a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s in Boston. You've never heard of Edward Kimball? No, nobody has. But Edward Kimball reached a young shoe clerk in Boston by the name of Dwight L. Moody with the gospel. He discipled Dwight L. Moody, who later through ministry and through succession, a guy by the name of Billy Sunday was reached. And then another gentleman by the name of Mordecai Ham, who God used to reach a, a wire-haired young guy by the name of Billy Frank, or you know him as Billy Graham. You all heard of Billy Graham, right? Uh-huh. Edward Kimball was the guy that God used to ultimately reach Billy Graham. You have no idea the impact you're going to make in somebody else's life. If we could just start thinking generationally, that the impact that you're making in student ministry in a student's life, the impact that you're making in a child's life, the impact that you're making in a neighbor neighbor's life or a student at school or a co-worker, you never know how generationally impactful that could be. Look at verse 25 with this heart. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Isn't that wonderful when someone comes looking for you, sees potential in you, seeks you out? And when he had found him, he brought him. He brought him alongside. Hey, let's go to Antioch. There's ministry to be done. And so he not only teaches uh, Saul uh, through teaching, but he models it for him. And so for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught them and a great many people they taught. Family, the church is to be centered around teaching. They taught the early church. The church needs to be centered on sound teaching. Our, our truth, our, our text, it's communicated through teaching. There's so much for us to learn. There's so much for us to learn. And I'll tell you this, that we need to be equipped but we need to have people who can equip. We need to have solid teachers in the church. A church that is deficient in teaching is deficient in discipleship and it's deficient in depth. You can have a church where thousands of people are going and gathering together, but if they are not receiving solid teaching, they are not receiving solid discipleship and they are not growing in depth. And a little bit of wind of friction will come and they'll just scatter. And they aren't going to be the seed that plant and and produce fruit. So my heart is that as long as God has you here, that you are taught and that you are soundly discipled and that you are trained. And in that training and equipping that you yourself start to equip and teach others, the, the center of our community is sound biblical teaching. Amen? Amen? It should be. And you should demand it, actually. And so... It's interesting because when you start to see a community do unique and curious things, the culture looks in and goes, what is that? And so the culture at Antioch began to see these Christians and they're, they're loving each other and they're serving one another and they're sacrificial. There's Jews and Gentiles hanging out. And even the culture at Antioch knows that's not kosher. They're like, they typically don't hang out together. Why are they all hanging out together? And they're all like sharing their goods and they're like learning and growing and worshiping. And so they're like, what is it? And it's like when somebody walks up and they've got that rope around their feet and you're like, what is that? They're all, oh, it's jandals, like Jesus sandals. And you're like, oh, that's what that's called. Well, the culture looked in and was like, what is it? And so they gave it a name. 
In fact, you have this name, Christianus, ones who associate with Christ. That's what they called them at Antioch. First time it had ever happened. They didn't know what to call them, so they called them what? Christians. In fact, the end of verse 26 says this, at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. If you are known by that name, understand that the root of that name was, was probably given in criticism. The culture at Antioch probably looked in and went, well, what do we call them? I don't know. Let's call them Christians because they love this guy Jesus so much. It's like somebody who looks in on our life and goes, oh, you're such a Jesus freak. But even in this criticism, I see and embrace the compliment. Wouldn't it be great if people so saw us that we so associated with Jesus, we so emulated his heart and life, they were like, you're a little Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I can't think of a higher title. And what I love it was the disciples that were first called Christians, that is the true followers of Jesus that were called Christians. That term is so muddled in our culture. People are Christians just because they're Americans. I'm like, that's not the truth. You are a Christian when you are a follower of Christ. You so associate with Jesus that Jesus is all over your life and people look in and go, that person's a Christian. I would much rather someone proclaim that over my life than I have to proclaim it. You ever go up to somebody and you tell them you're a Christian and they go, I had no idea. That's not a compliment. <laughs> what would your coworkers say if they found out you were a Christian? Would they be surprised? How about your fellow classmates? Would your fellow classmates sit there and go, wow, I never saw that coming. That's weird. See, it's one thing for us to call ourselves a Christian. It's another thing for someone else to be able to see Jesus in our life. Amen? All right, so applications. Let's talk about what we can do to apply this message to our life this week. First, wide and deep. We love in the church hearing about those who respond to the gospel. And I love it too, man. But that's one part of the equation. It's not just responding to the gospel. It's growing deep in your faith. My encouragement is that you grow in your faith. And I'm just doing what Barnabas did to church at Antioch. My challenge is that you remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast purpose. Prioritize, intentionally pursue a growing Christian life. The opportunities are available. We go to great lengths to make the opportunities available to you, whether you're a student, a, a child over in our children's ministry, or if you're an adult. The opportunities to grow are here. You just got to take them. And so when I talk about opportunities to grow, I'm thinking about things like, well, Bible studies that happen. We have Bible studies at 9.30 and 11 a.m. that are going on during service. So you can go to service and you can get a Bible study in. We have men's Bible study, Thursday night discipleship, where we're training teachers to teach. We have life groups, inner city ministries, local outreach, overseas missions. The list goes on, but here's the deal. We have made a commitment as a ministry to not waste your time. So if we offer it, we actually believe it will help grow your spiritual life. But <laughs> if you don't come, I don't know what else we can do. This isn't a guilt and shame message. This is just an, it's just a sense of saying, family, when are we going to prioritize our Christian life? And this is not, oh, I'm not doing enough. I mean, some of us look at the Christian life and we're like, it's so hard, I can't do it. And I'm like, we realize we're talking about shepherd and we're sheep. How hard does a shepherd make it for the sheep to be shepherded? 
Do you think Jesus is going to make it really hard on you to grow? He says, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Find rest for your souls. I'm like, he's not going to make it hard. You just got to come and be disciples. Okay, so secondly, uh, I'm using this term, parakaleo, that we, we so now know as to call alongside uh, as an important principle for your Christian life. If you want to grow, it's important for us to recognize the importance of discipleship and mentorship. We need, as mature Christians, we need to reach out. We need to call alongside of us a, a newer believer, and we need to disciple them. Newer believers, you need to be discipled. And as you grow, you need to call somebody alongside of you and disciple them. So you were discipled and you were giving it away. You were discipled, you were giving it away. We're always learning and we're always giving it away to call someone alongside of. And so I want to challenge you, who is the one that's discipling you? Who is it? And who are you discipling? All right, I'll let you all chew on that. Uh, and then finally, <laughs> my favorite <laughs> point of the day, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> just like we began, the message of Jesus is very, very simple. There's a way that seems right. And there's a way that's preached and there's a way that culture says is that you're supposed to go. But I'm going to tell you right now, if it's leading you away from Jesus, it's the wrong way. And I would not be loving you if I did not tell you that if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, you are going the wrong way. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was physically buried. And on the third day, he triumphantly rose from the grave. He is alive and he ascended into heaven. And he is exalted at the right hand of God. And the Bible proclaims, if you call out on the name of the Lord, who is Jesus, you will be saved. Lord, we thank you for this morning. The opportunity to study your word, it's such a gift. We thank you that we can be taught, we can grow. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of being a rent-a-shepherd here. But Lord, ultimately, you're the true shepherd. Continue to shepherd your people towards yourself. If you're here today and you do not have Jesus as your Savior, you've not asked him to save your life, you've not invited him into your life, just understand the direction of your life. You're heading the wrong way. It does not lead to life. It does lead to death. Spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical death. The Bible states that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and he's rose. He's alive right now. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior in the quietness of your heart, tell him, I believe. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I ask for forgiveness. I believe that you're alive. Please save my life. And the Bible declares that that is your heart's prayer. You've just passed from death to life. You are now a son or daughter of God. You are now walking in the way. Now it's time to grow. Challenge us, Lord. Lord, we have been exhorted to grow in our faith. I pray we not take that lightly. Give us the opportunities to grow. May we take them. We want to be like you, Jesus. May people see in us you. May we proudly be called Christians today. We love you. And we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. I love how we sing, I surrender. It's easy to sing, isn't it? 
surrender is hard. I surrender my life. I surrender my family. I surrender my wallet. I surrender my ingenuity. I surrender my hands, my feet. I surrender it all. I give it to you. That's tough. Well, I pray that you go into the world in peace and great courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace and goodness of our Lord Jesus be with you. Till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world, go demonstrate to the world that they are too. And tell them, hey, I love you, but you're going the wrong way. I want to show you the way. Have a great week.